is going to be 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10 is, is where we're going to focus in. Titled the sermon, Chosen to Serve. Really, the, the overarching theme of the text is election. Peter says that God has, the word elect just means chosen. So God, God has chosen Jesus to be the foundation of his redemptive program in the world. And he's chosen the church to be his redemptive instruments in Christ for taking the gospel to the world, for his redemptive program. And so that's sort of the big idea. I had a Sunday school teacher, first Sunday school teacher I ever had. I, I became a believer when I was uh, just just before 23. And uh, so in a college and career Sunday school class at a Baptist church, my Sunday school teacher was a UPS driver, and he used to say this just about every time I ever heard him teach. He'd say, with the awesome South Alabama accent, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and UPS paid me to do it. How about that? And, uh, man, that guy, that guy was just one of my heroes. And, and he, he understood that ministry flows from identity that we will operate in gospel ministry when we embrace a gospel identity. And so when we talk about election, and election's kind of a controversial topic in our church culture, and I'm going to address that a little bit. When the Bible talks about election, the emphasis that the biblical writers put on election is that God chose you, and he chose you for a purpose. And so it's not, uh, as we're going to see a quote from Walt Kaiser, it's not, election is not simply a call to privilege, but it's a choosing for service. You ever heard the gospel presentation that starts with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, it's true. God loves you. And if you, if you have turned to Christ in faith, then God has chosen you and he has a wonderful plan for your life that he wants to work out. And so, as we're, as we're going through this series on work, I think one of the most helpful things for us is to understand this gospel identity, to embrace it so that we can then walk out this gospel ministry that Jesus has entrusted to us. So, uh, let's dive into the text, beginning in verse 4. It says, "...in coming to Him," and that's Jesus, "...as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice." And precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. This is Peter's support for what he's saying. This is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us now in this time. God, I pray that you would help my weakness. I pray that uh, uh, what is said here uh, would be clear. And, and Father, that it would be uh, penetrating to the heart of the listener. God, would you help us to embrace the identity that you've given us in Christ? And would you help us to zealously pursue the gospel ministry that you've entrusted to each and every person here? Uh, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea, as I mentioned, is God has chosen Jesus to be the foundation of his redemptive program, and he's chosen the church to serve him in the world, glorifying him through representation, intercession, and proclamation. And we'll unpack those as we go. Uh, now, but you know, they say you should always give the bad news first. So I'm going to, the, the election's a little controversial, so I just kind of want to address uh, the issue of election. So when the Bible talks about election, in the most general sense, it means God's choosing something or someone for a particular purpose. Now, in the New Testament, when the biblical authors use it, it almost always refers to those who are saved. But I would, I would argue that it has sort of this end times nuance to it. So one way that I would define who the elect are, the elect is that body of believers who will be fully and finally saved at the last day. So when, when the biblical authors talk about the elect, they're kind of looking at it from this Godward horizontal perspective. The elect are those people who are going to respond to the gospel. They're going to persevere in faith. In the uh, terminology of revelation, they're going to overcome, and they're going to be fully and finally saved and spend eternity with Christ. So that's the Godward perspective. From the human perspective, the, the horizontal perspective, we don't know who is in that number. The controversy among Christians is about whether God knows who's in that number. So that, that group of people who are fully and finally saved, does God know their names already and they will respond in faith because it's already been determined by God that they would? Or are people included in the elect as they turn to Christ in faith? So like the elect is an empty category. And so you just get put into that group when you put your faith in Christ. So to put it another way, uh, is a per- does a person believe because they're elect? Or are they elect because they believe? Okay, so that is a something that Christians have argued about for centuries. And we're not going to settle it this morning. Uh, but... Lucky for us, it uh, doesn't really affect how we handle this passage. Um, Because in this particular passage, the picture is that Jesus is the elect. Jesus is the one that God has chosen to bring redemption to the world. And we, as we turn to him in faith, God incorporates us into this redemptive program. And we'll, we'll see that when we come to it. But back to election For example, Abraham is elected. Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, even though it doesn't use the word elect, he says, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so out of All the people on the face of the earth, God chooses this one man and his family to be his elect, his his particular chosen person that God is going to 
get the ball rolling in his redemptive program, right? If you read through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, do you see people getting better or you see people getting worse? Right? You see things getting worse. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis is about God creating a good creation. And as human beings start making choices, the whole thing unravels. And it progressively becomes worse and worse and worse and worse. And where the story picks up with Abraham is that God is ready to to initiate this redemptive work that he's going to do. And he chooses this one family out of the face of the earth. I'm not mad that it wasn't my family that God chose. He chose Abram's family because God is infinitely wise and he knew what he's doing. And so I'm going to trust him. In Exodus 19, we see God choosing Israel. Now, Israel's situation was descending from Abraham. They ended up going down to Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years. And then, again, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, he's continuing his promise to Abraham. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, he chooses Israel to make a special covenant with. He says, now, then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all my people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And this is one of the passages where Peter is is drawing from in the passage that we're going to look at today. So Peter basically says that the church has now picked up the mantle of this responsibility to be God's representatives in the world. So Walter Kaiser says, The election of Israel, far from meaning the rejection of the other nations of the world, was the very means of salvation of the nations. Election was not a call to privilege, but a choosing for service. So when God called Abraham, I would actually qualify what he said. I would say it's not merely a call to privilege. I think there's great privilege in being God's elect. Paul argues that for Israel in Romans chapter 11. It says their blessing was great as God's chosen people. So it's not merely a call to privilege, but it is a choosing for service. So when God calls Abraham, he told Abraham, Abraham, you're chosen, I'm going to bless you. But he also said, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And so Abraham's blessing was not simply for himself, but it was for the world. Israel's blessing was not simply for themselves, but it was for the world. Now, if you read the rest of your Old Testament, you'll know that, that Israel didn't have the best job performance. If they, if they were going in for a job review uh, on their priesthood, they would pro- well, they did get canned. Actually, Jesus, uh, Jesus says that. And we're going to look at that passage too. Uh, And then finally, Jesus is elect, and we see this prophetically in Isaiah 53, where it says, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allow him a portion with the great. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So Jesus was... So he started with Abraham, moved to the nation Israel, and out of the nation Israel, God brings forth this one God-man who is going to be the redeemer for all of God's people. And, and the Israelites couldn't see this, but God's vision for the whole world was expressed in the, in the mission of Jesus Christ to come to the world. And so if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, when it describes the redeemed, in heaven, how does it describe them? It describes them people 
from every nation and every tribe and every tongue, singing to God, giving glory to God. God has always had an eye on the nations. But still, election, I mean, we can't, we can't dodge the fact that there's exclusivity to it. And it's not that God is arbitrarily choosing some and not choosing others, apparently, but it's that people, uh, there's only one way to come to God, and it's through Jesus Christ, right? Tim Paul says that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so it's exclusive in the sense that there's no way to come to God, to be reconciled with God, except through faith in Christ. It's inclusive in the sense that God has called us to preach to all creation. Every every nation, every tribe on the face of the earth, we don't pretend that we know who the elect are. We we just want to be faithful to get the word out to everyone. And this gave the Apostle Paul great confidence, right? Because he could go and he could have confidence that he could preach somewhere and he would know that out of the people there, there's some people that God have appointed to eternal life and that they will respond in faith, right? So in Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, he says, I, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that leads to eternal life. So he had in view this group of people that are fully and finally going to be saved at the last day. He says, I'm enduring what I'm enduring. At that time he was enduring a lot. He was, he was writing his swan song from prison, right? And, he, and so he's, he's facing death. He says, I'm enduring what I'm enduring because I understand that God set me apart for gathering the elect. God wants to use me to gather the people that he wants to spend eternity with. All right? That's a, that's a huge privilege, and it's an enormous responsibility. And it's the same privilege and the same responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to do all things for the sake of the elect? So we're going to talk about what you can do in your workplace by way of application. As we look at the text here, uh, our first point, we want to see that God has chosen Jesus to be the foundation of his redemptive program, dividing people according to their responses to him. If, if we want to peel back the curtain and have arguments about whether God, they did this because they were predestined to or they chose this because they're predestined to, he says very clearly that um, how they respond reveals whether or not they are they're in the elect. So Jesus uses this this uh, Matthew twenty one forty two through forty four. This is where he quotes uh, what Peter is quoting. So beginning in verse four, he says, "Coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house." for a holy priesthood. So he says, Jesus is this stone, and he goes on in verse 6, he says, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the cornerstone in ancient construction, it was the most important piece. It had to be square. It had to be plumb. When you set it, it had, because it set the lines when your, when your construction process is stacking blocks on top of each other, uh, that first block has got to be square and it's got to be plumb because it sets the lines for the walls and, and how they're going. 
And so, so he says that Jesus is this first cornerstone, this, this true, he's, he's true, he's plumb, he's square, he's, he's perfect. And it says, uh, well, precious. That, that word means precious, highly valued, honored. And Jesus, so God is, God is, I mean, Jesus is precious in God's sight. And he's the stone which the builders rejected. And Jesus quoted this scripture in reference to himself. He said to some Pharisees, he said, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So this is by the Lord's uh, intention, the Lord's doing. Therefore, I say to you, and this is where he fires them, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So Jesus is, he is central to God's redemptive program, and it's his person and the way that people respond to his person that divides people. Jesus, you remember Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but I came to bring a sword. And even households are going to be divided over me. There are people whose families won't accept them because they follow Christ. So it's pretty strong language. Whoever, whoever falls on it will be broken. Whoever, on whoever falls, it'll be scattered like dust. F.F. Bruce says, in a gallery where artistic masterpieces are on display, it's not the masterpieces, but the visitors that are on trial. He says in, in that book, he says, if you can say that the Mona Lisa is a piece of garbage, but you would, you wouldn't, by that statement, you wouldn't tell me much about the Mona Lisa, but you would tell me a lot about you. So these great masterpieces don't stand in need of our judgment, but our taste or lack of it is demonstrated by how we respond to them. Same thing. Jesus, that cornerstone is precious and true and valuable, and that's not up for debate, but how we respond to it shows who we are. And so so Jesus, he said, he uses this image of Jesus being a, a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. And then in verse 5, he says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And he uses this, so Jesus is a living stone, you're a living stone. One way that I think of this is that uh, God is involved in a construction project, and there's only one brand of building materials that he uses, and it's the faith brand. And so when you come to him in faith, turning to Christ in faith, you are useful building material for what God is doing. And he takes that brick and he incorporates it into the project that he's undergoing. And the project's not finished. And so that's the the other thing when we think about election. Is election exclusive or is it inclusive? Well, it's right and good for us to feel privileged by being chosen by God. It's right for us to feel honored and humbled and grateful that God would choose us. But God didn't stop building the church when he saved me. And he didn't stop building the church when he saved you. He saved us so that we can be instruments of bringing in the rest of the elect, the rest of those who are, are remaining. And so... That leads us to number two. God has chosen the church to serve him in the world, glorifying him through representation, intercession, and proclamation. So Jesus is the, is foundational to God's redemptive project, God's redemptive program, but we 
are the means that God chooses to use for his redemptive project. We're instrumental. And sometimes I think in, in Christian culture, we, we don't want to... We know that God doesn't need us, and that's true, right? So we don't want to say that we're necessary, right? God doesn't need me because he can use anybody. But if God has chosen to use you in an instrumental way, and he has chosen, you're, you're like plan A, and there is no plan B, congratulations, you have just become necessary. You've just become, in an instrumental sense, even though you don't have power in yourself to save anyone, you, you need God's strengthening and spirit filling to do the work that he calls you to do, you are instrumental, and, and God expects you and you'll be held accountable for doing the work that he's given you to do. Uh, this work of representing, interceding, and proclaiming. The first chapter of First Peter, this word elect shows up again, translated chosen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. I think it's interesting that he introduces this election language at the very beginning of his letter, but he also introduces us to some priesthood language. So he says that you've been chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, so the Spirit has set you apart. So to be set apart means to be to be differentiated from the rest of the world. So that means, Christian, you should be different than the people around you if they're unbelievers. Uh, so... Sanctifying work of the Spirit, set apart by the Spirit, to obey Jesus. So God's purpose is that you would obey Jesus and that you would be sprinkled with His blood. And this image of sprinkling comes from the Old Testament and it's from the priests of Aaron when they were going to be consecrated for service, the blood would be taken and sprinkled on them. How would you like that? Could we have sprinkling Sunday? No. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus Christ has been that one final sacrifice. And he says, you, when you gave your life to Christ, you were sprinkled with his blood. You were cleansed. So there's two, two sides to that image. One is cleansing. So, so you are clean in Christ. God doesn't see your sin anymore. But the other side to that is commissioning. You've been cleansed, but you've been cleansed for a purpose. And that's you've been commissioned to serve Christ. And so in verses 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Real fast, there are uh, about three, three Old Testament passages that Peter is drawing from. One is, we looked at it, it was Exodus chapter 19. And the situation there was that Israel was in Egypt and God chose them and he brought them out of Egypt. Another one, uh, when it talks about a people for God's own possession and proclaiming the excellencies, I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of the ladies from this weekend, but that comes from Isaiah 43, where he says, the people that I formed for myself, to that they might declare my praise. Again, in that particular, in that historical context, there's a reversal going on. Israel has been exiled to Babylon because of their sin, 
And God is talking about how, as his elect people, he's going to bring them back. He's going to gather them together. He's going to provide for them water in the wilderness. And then, and then finally, verse 10 is an allusion to Hosea, which you may be familiar with. God uses Hosea's life as an object lesson, and he says that you are not my people. I will not show compassion on you, but then he does. He, he relents and he shows them mercy. He draws them in. And he says that you who were not my people, now you are my people. You who had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So my point is, is that in, in all three of these Old Testament passages, there's a situation of deep human need, namely our sinfulness and our separation from God because of our sinfulness. And God reaches in and he pulls us out. And he shows our mercy to him. So, so, so when the biblical authors, and Peter in particular here, when they talk about election, there's this idea of being a, a rescued people. A people who were hellbound, we would say, right? Separated from God because of our sinfulness, utterly helpless to help ourselves. And yet, election is about God doing for us what we cannot do. And that's why we call it grace, right? Because it's, it's totally unmerited favor. God didn't do it because of anything that we could do, anything that we deserve. In Israel's case, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 7 and 8, he talks about how it's not because you were the most numerous people, not because you were sophisticated people, not because you were flashy people, but I chose you. I decided to set my affection on you, he says. Isn't that good? I think that's why, why the New Testament uses the picture of marriage as a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Marriage is pretty exclusive, right? It's supposed to be. So a man chooses one woman and he gives himself to her completely. And he says this is what Christ has done for the church, that he's chosen her to be with him. So there's this reversal of fortune that happens because God has chosen us. So he's chosen the church to serve him by representing him to the world. You see that in verses 9 and then also down to 11, 15. So about what I mean by representation is holiness, right? So he says, uh, you'll see in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds glorify God in the day of visitation. And so, and you'll find this theme throughout this letter. If you read this, he talks over and over again about how God is pleased when you silence the ignorance of foolish men by your good behavior. So we reflect God's character. We're called as priests to reflect his character. So we're a chosen race, a holy nation. Second, God has chosen church to serve him by interceding on behalf of the world. So we're called to be priests, and part of a priest is to, to uh, priest's work is to intercede. It says Jesus is the only mediator for men. So Jesus stands forever at the right hand of God, interceding for us. His blood forever makes atonement for our sins. You know, that's why you don't have to get saved every day. That's why when you turn to Christ in faith and you unite yourself with Him, His, He stands forever to intercede for you. And so you don't have to keep coming to God to get fresh salvation every day. He's, he's always there covering your sin, even though you fail daily. God has chosen the church to serve him by proclaiming his praise in the world. So uh, 
Just like it says in verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there's a proclamational part to what we're called to do. We're supposed to share the gospel verbally with people. We're supposed to tell people about what God has done in our lives. And it doesn't have to be obnoxious. It can be winsome and kind. Thinking back on verse 5, and this is kind of I'm getting ready to land the plane. On verse 5, he talks about God is, you're being incorporated into the spiritual house that God is building to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. And so just in conclusion, I just kind of wanted us to think about what are these spiritual sacrifices? Because there are probably more than you think in the New Testament. So first is the sacrifice of praise. we got a song about this one. You probably don't need me to talk about it too much. But in Hebrews, it says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. And he goes on in, in that same verse, or verse 16 to say, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So there's a sacrifice of serving and sharing. And again, just by way of application, be thinking about this in terms of your workplace. How can you serve in your workplace? How can you share in your workplace? How can you do the work, this priestly work of representing God where you, where you live and where you work? Sacrifice the financial support, but I have received everything in full, have an abundance, I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Sacrifice of a devoted life. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And a devoted life goes hand-in-hand with the issue of credibility. If you don't have credibility in your workplace, you're you're not going to have an opportunity to minister to people. They need to see you and see that you're the real deal through and through. There's a sacrifice of evangelism. Paul says, The grace was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's not thinking about a sacrifice of time. He's not saying, well, I I give so much of my time per week to evangelism, and that's my sacrifice to God. He says, it's the fruit of my evangelism. He labors earnestly in the Lord to win converts, and these people who have come to faith through his ministry, they're what he has. They are what he has to offer to the Lord. I, that's convicting to me. I think, am I going to have any offering to give to God? How about a sacrifice of discipleship? In Colossians one twenty eight, he says, "We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ." This is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 to refer to Christ presenting the church to himself holy and blameless. So he may present every person mature or complete in Christ. Are you giving a sacrifice of discipleship, pouring your life, discipling other people? And then finally, the sacrifice of suffering from 2 Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And so Paul, writing this letter from, from prison, he says, he says my, my life given for the sake of the gospel is just a, a drink offering poured out on the altar of God. So here's your, your applications. You're chosen to serve, so be responsible. 
I think this is probably one of the, when we think about our workplaces and the places where we live, it starts by embracing your election and your calling as a, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when someone uh, asks you, which I, I think that my, my Sunday school teacher, if he'd been in an elevator and someone said, what do you do for a living? He'd probably said, I'm minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the UPS pays me to do it. He probably would have been that bold. I, I don't, I don't know if, if we would. But the point is, what, what do you, how do you think of yourself? How do you conceive of yourself? Do you conceive of yourself first as a Christian? In our American culture, we tend to so closely identify ourselves with our work, our, our day-to-day, uh, how we make our living. And this is part of why um, in a lot of churches the, the, the general congregation is checked out of ministry, right? They come to hear the sermon. They want to try to be better people and be pleasing to God. But they're, they're not actively involved in the work of ministry because their conception is the guy who does it professionally is the guy who does ministry. So the guy who gets paid, the guy who makes his living from it, he's the one, he's the one that is responsible for it. But what Peter is telling us is that every one of us is responsible for it in those places where God has put us. Be responsible, embrace it, own it, be credible. Some, some of us have a ministering in your workplace is a challenge because you've blown it, because you've lost your temper because you haven't treated people with dignity, and you don't have any credibility to talk about Jesus to the people you work with. If you've blown it, you've got to own it. And you're going to have to, you may, you're going to have to go to some people and make amends. By the grace of God, you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, and I need you to forgive me and know that, that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and it's not okay. Be prayerful. Intercede. Be praying for the people that you work with, especially the ones you can't stand. So, Right, because there, there are people that get on our nerves. They just rub us wrong. Those are people we need extra grace. And it's part of, part of being responsible and owning it is that if, if we're responsible and we're owning our commission from God, we can't sit around looking at everybody else waiting on them to change. Well, you know, I'll share the gospel with him as soon as he gets his act together. Right? Right? So we've got to own it. and We've got to be prayerful. We've got to intercede for people who need intercession. Uh, be available. Be an open and safe person. Some of you would struggle to, to minister in the workplace because you've made snarky comments and sarcastic jokes and people don't see you as a safe place or maybe you talk too much and they don't think that you can keep confidence. So be available. Be humble. Be willing to serve. Be willing to do the menial tasks. And, and you know, I know in, in a lot of workplaces, people try to handle their workload and... Uh, I was actually reading an article about this, but they said it's become corporate culture has become no matter where you're at in the ladder, everybody wants to be a delegator. And so everybody wants to find somebody else to shift work around to. Maybe you could be the person to, you know, have you need to have some boundaries for sure. But you can be the person who handles your own workload with competence and with excellence. And if you have some margin instead of playing solitaire or whatever you do on your computer, you could reach out to somebody else and say, hey, do you need some help with that? I see you got a lot on your plate. Be humble. Be willing to serve, to lower yourself and be a servant for people. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time together, God. We uh, just ask that you would help us, Father, to walk as priests, God, that we would we would see ourselves as a holy, chosen people, God, that we would seek to reflect your character that we would be ready to tell other people about your love, God, that we would 
never never hold our the privilege that you've given us of being your people, that we would never hold it with an attitude of judgment or an attitude of exclusivity, but, Father, that we would be open-handed with the gospel and that, that our mouths would be open to, to speak your word and to tell people of your love. Would you, would you cause us to be uh, like Jesus Christ, the people that you, you are pulling us together to be? Help us, we pray. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.